Following a launch at both the Cannes Film Festival and the Toronto International Film Festival, Charlotte Laban's debut Falcon Lake is now playing in select theaters nationwide and on digital platforms June 13th. A love and ghost story, Falcon Lake follows a shy teenager on vacation who experiences the joy and pain of first love when he forges a bond with an older girl. See what the playlist called a bold, haunting, coming-of-age story by heading over to falconlakefilm.com to watch the trailer and to find out more information about the release. Once again, that is falconlakefilm.com. Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and is delivered right to your front door four times a year, each issue filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including, from time to time, your KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, and you damn well should, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. KingCast listeners are in the family, so I got a nifty promo code to share for y'all. You can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code KingCast at checkout. Now with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. We have a really fun one for you today, folks. Joining us is one of the most interesting up-and-coming filmmakers who has turned in back-to-back-to-back bangers in the last three years, starting with 2020's Host, continuing on with 2021's Dashcam, and he's capping off this impressive run with this Friday's Stephen King adaptation, The Boogeyman. Now he's here to chat not only The Boogeyman, but the short story collection that came from Night Shift. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rob Savage to the KingCast stage. Hey, guys. Hello, Rob. How are you doing today? Extremely jet-lagged, but uh, very happy to be here. What country are you in right now, Rob? I'm uh, I'm in the UK for, for one more day, just here doing... Uh, I did Comic-Con over here, and I'm introducing a couple of Boogeyman screenings before we release on fri- Friday. Friday. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, then, um, and then I'm flying back for a couple of, uh, couple of Q&As in LA before, before our proper opening weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked you're here. <laughs> that you know, I'm really glad that you you came on here. But we were we reached out like we months ago. We're like, yeah, well, let's do this, and we like agreed that like, oh, everybody was in, uh, and we're like, oh, we can record early if we want. And now, of course, everything just the way everything fell. It's like now we are talking the week of the of your movie's release, probably <laughs> when you're the most busy uh, since filming. About, maybe it but. feels about right. It feels about right. But yeah, I'm so just, you're going to be at your sharpest. Place. Yeah, and I'm in, and you know, I'm like, I, I, I've been on these press junkets. So I've been asked, you know, I've been asked about Stephen King about six hundred times a day, every day. So I'm like in that zone where I'm okay, just good. living, breathing King. <laughs> if you Welcome want, we can just world. ask you Dean Koontz questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so this is the Boogeyman, which I have, I have not had a chance to see. Eric has. Yeah. Um. So you're you're gonna get a, be getting questions with two levels of well informed thinking behind them yes but uh you're the boogeyman is 
another one of these horror movies that's come along recently where the original plan was maybe it goes to streaming and then a test screening occurred, some audience reactions occurred and that plan changed. Um, I'm very curious to talk to directors who are in your particular spot, because I know the streaming versus theatrical thing means something different to every director. You know, some of them seem to care more than others. Uh, how did how did you respond when you found out this was going theatrical? I mean, it was the best. It's the best. Obviously, every filmmaker makes uh, makes their film for the big screen. I don't think anyone imagines, you know, I'm going to I'm going to shoot this so that people can watch it on their widescreen TV at home. Um, right. That being said, I've got to be very careful about what I say because after after doing so many exhausted days of press, like I, I just saw an article today where it's like director of Boogeyman says that having film on Hulu would be a travesty, and it's like, I I did say that. <laughs> That's not really my message. Hulu's Hulu's great. Um, it's just that this story, this movie, the way that I make my films host uh, side which was designed for a laptop screen which is the only time anyone any filmmaker will ever say that um <laughs> is uh like the way that i make movies is for for the big screen so um it's not a travesty that it was going to hulu but it is uh it is an incredible thing that it that it's now going to the big screen and um uh to be honest it's like kind of something that i was aiming for and pitching for as i was making this movie I, like i kind of it's Stephen King, you know. It's Stephen King, so so that's that's one that's one point in your favor straight away. It's Stephen King. It's the Boogeyman, which is just a great big bold title to splash right. on the big screen. And I, so I kind of knew that if and we had a great script, great cast, all of that stuff. So so I kind of I kind of had this like arrogant notion that if if I didn't like completely fuck up the movie. Um, you know, we we stood a chance of going the way of Smile, going the way of Barbarian. You know, there was this kind of tradition of, um, or I guess it's not a tradition, but but uh, there was this um, pattern of movies flipping theatrical after they um, after they showed that kind of commercial prospect. And I right. and I I made this movie with that in mind. It's really interesting, though. Like, I'm I'm curious. I have two questions uh, that are on this topic. One of them is like, if you're if you know in your heart of hearts, do you really want to want to go theatrical with it? Does that mean that you prioritize production value? Like you take more time getting, you know, setting up the lighting because the movie looks beautiful. And obviously you have whole set pieces that are, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole conceit of this thing is, is a thing that lives in the dark in, in the shadows. Yeah. Right. So, so that's automatically just tied into the plot. Having good cinematography is kind of a must, but you know, I assume making it, with an aim to hopefully nudge it into theatrical, you were you weren't taking shortcuts that maybe you would take if you knew that the only time people were going to watch it was on their their TV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, it's one and, question, and, but really, it's more that like I just need to be able to live with myself as a filmmaker. I don't want to make an ugly ah, right. movie, and, and um, like I'm always <laughs> um, I, like I used to. I started out in this game um, shooting my own movies, editing them. Like I'm pretty adept at every single department I'm not nearly to the point where i'd be able to to actually do those jobs but i'm but i'm really quite specific about it all and um i just i, I was just like the luckiest uh person in the world to have eli Bourne, the, our cinematographer come on board because mm. he's just a genius and he's also incredibly fast like we didn't we didn't have a lot of days to shoot this movie we had um uh like 34 days you know like in comparison, e Evil Dead Rise shot for like sixty something days. So we had, <laughs> right. um, 
but Eli is we've just we share such a we share such a sensibility like every you know every time every time I have a movie in my head and I work with a cinematographer they'll always come up with beautiful work but it's always like a stone's throw away from from how I actually saw it in my head and with Eli he'd he'd meet and surpass everything I had in my head time after time and the mm. great thing is he's just so fast he would and, and he'd light he lights when he can very simply which is why it feels both beautiful but also kind of grounded there's a reality to the movie mm. you know sometimes he'll just um you know have a couple of lights and then he'll just he'll switch on a desk a, you know desktop lamp and be like oh that looks pretty good and then we'll just go with that and it'll keep it um justified and not feeling so slick that it uh it you know it could only exist within a movie screen right well, the other part of the question in putting yourself in the best position to, to go theatrical is mm. you you cast great actors giving great performances. That's the other half of the equation. And I mean, you got we, we're huge fans of Sophie Thatcher here at the King yeah. cast. We love Yellow Jackets in like, you know, but this is the first time I've seen her. It's like, oh, this the, the movie kind of rests on her shoulders. And yeah, uh, and she fucking kills it like i i was so happy that that uh both uh her and, and what's what's the younger one's name lyra vivian lyra blair i knew her only from you know the obi-wan show but yeah. but like both of those those people uh you know just absolutely carry the movie because if you don't care about their you know those characters and their relationship to each other then you know none of the other stuff really matters it's just you know a, a spook show you know completely completely and it's like you know the 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 original pitch for this movie, my, my pitch to the studio was um, uh, ordinary people meets poltergeist. So I wanted it to feel <laughs> like we had world-class actors doing world-class acting that, that, you know, just like in the short story, we're dealing with these really meaty um, themes and I want the actors to rise to that challenge. I want you to be able to take any of those dramatic scenes and put them side to side with the drama and not feel like you're in some kind of like flippant horror movie that's that's mm. um, that's breezing through those moments so we can get to the scares. I mean, there's plenty of scares, but I wanted um, uh, I wanted the performances to to match up, and 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 it, you know, I don't. I mean, I don't need to tell you guys, but it's one of those things where each one bolsters the other. That the the better um, performances, the more you empathize with the characters, the more you connect with what they're going through, the better the scares right. work, and you know, that's that comes from King directly. Hmm. One uh, one thing I want to ask about is, and and we're we're airing this Wednesday, so we're airing this before yes. the movies come out, so we don't want to go yes. too far into spoiler territory. But um, I am to understand from the people that I've talked to that have seen it uh, that the design on the boogeyman itself is really fucking cool, and I'm mm. I'm curious what the process was for you in, you know, presumably collaborating with you know, whoever created this effect for you to, did you have something in mind? Did they bring you options? Like how did that process go to end yeah, up? With I, mean, what you I, ended up with? I started, it started with a brief. We worked with a lot of different designers and we eventually ended up on the design that we've got, which is a collaboration between Keith Thompson, who um, he designed some great creatures for, for David Bruckner's movies. He worked with, works with Guillermo del Toro, but it was really this movie, the ritual that I oh, saw. Oh yeah. my God. Yes. Incredible creature. Um, he came up with um, this aspect of the design that's like so, um, so perfect and disturbing. Um, and then the, the guys at folks who are our VFX company finished it off. Um, and uh, really the brief was um, 
this is this is this is the boogeyman. Everyone's got their own idea of what this thing looks like. That word, the boogeyman, is just is just the word that we put on this thing as kids. It's the first word that we reach for. But we've got to imagine this creature as being um, primordial. Like I kind of painted this picture for the designers. I said this thing has to feel like it's at home, um, stalking the dark caves as the as cavemen kind of huddle around a fire. It's been it's been around as long as there's darkness. It's a kind of fundamental um, evil that exists in the world. So it's got to feel weathered and battered and um, not like some kind of pantomime, um, some pantomime creature. You know, it's not, um, I think it's not Pennywise. It's not something that's kind of like um, pandering to your fear. This is the, this is where fear comes from. So it has to right. feel um, ancient and and also kind of uh, so simple that you could, uh, you could draw it in crayon as a child and it would make sense. So it was like they were, de- they were delivering these like incredibly detailed, um, lifelike sketches and then also crayon drawings because it had to exist as both <laughs> and um and then it's also like i don't want to give it away but there's like a, a, a there's another aspect of the design that that um isn't immediately apparent when you see the creature but you but you kind of get revealed as the movie goes on that 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 pays direct homage to the short story and the twist ending of the short story um mm-hmm. which you know is obviously that's, oh, that's an cool. image that's an image that everyone who read the story is never going to forget anytime soon. Yeah, the, the, without going into spoilers, the reveal on that reminded me a whole lot. And I'm glad you brought up the ritual and that there's a, a connection there because there's that moment in the ritual where you like, yeah. you go, Oh, it's not just that. It's that like, you, you yes. have, you have that moment in this movie. Yeah. exactly. I can't believe you got the guy that did the creature in the ritual. Cause that's like, like I'm a hardcore monster kid. I, I grew up loving like creature design and like a, a drum that I've been beating for years is that creature design has gone off the rails a little bit. So yeah. much of the time you see these horror movies where it's like it's a big gray CGI thing and maybe it's got extra arms and it's got mm-hmm. it looks like kind of like Cloverfield or whatever the fuck. You know, I've seen that some variation on that monster like a hundred times now, I feel like. And The Ritual is the movie that is like my go-to example these days of excellent unsettling creature design. That, that thing looks Lovecraftian. Yeah, it's the best. So, and I, and he, he also did, um, he did the Cenobites on the new Hellraiser movie, which I thought was oh. really, really well designed. He's, <laughs> oh, he's, yeah, they were. He's, he's a genius. Yeah. That's awesome. You're talking to Scott's got to be this dude's number one fan. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I love the new Hellraiser. You're, you're saying all the right things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get to your Stephen King origin story too quickly, but I also feel like my other questions around the boogeyman involve, you know, the short story part of it, because one of the in in order to get into that, you're probably going to have to talk about your your Stephen King origin story. So I'm going to tell you the question and then you can throw in your origin story to this. All right. Yeah. Um, So the question is, is in the structure of this um, and the fact that it's such a smart idea to take the short story as a jumping off point and not try to pull it out into its own. Like this is, this is a 90 minute version of this eight page story or yeah. whatever, where, where uh, we know uh, our good friend, friend of the show, David Desmulchin, you know, plays yeah. the character that you're familiar with from the short story and he overlaps this, but it's, it's really the, uh, uh, the catalyst for what goes on. Um, so maybe as a Stephen King fan, 
uh, yourself and you must have known known of the short story before this project came to you. Um, yeah. Was that something that really attracted you to the, to the project, that whole pitch? And uh, and maybe that rolls right in your Stephen King origin story. You can tell us what you love about King. It kind of does. It kind of does. Um, yeah, because I got offered this movie, right? I did this movie host. Um, this is this Zoom uh, seance movie that blew up during the pandemic. And right off the bat of that, I got offered uh, 600 different scripts and uh, the boogeyman being the best of them. Um, I got sent it. I, I got, you know, I got the, you, when you get sent a script, you get a little kind of preamble about, you know, this is the story and this is, this is, these are the writers. And I, I like I knew um, Beckenwoods I've received from, from a quiet place and they'd done a draft on this thing. They'd been developing it for a while. Um, and I also, remembered and 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 my body remembered the fear of reading that short story (laughs) way too young um but but my initial reaction was like well how the fuck are they going to do that like it's um i didn't know if it was going to be a weird contained thing if we're going to have flashbacks if it was going to be telling the story of lester billings and then i read the i read the draft um and beckenwood's draft was actually it's a lot different from the movie that ended up on screen. I ended up kind of developing it off in a different direction, but the mm. thing that they cracked that was so beautiful is um, how to slot in this short story into a wider narrative. And they'd come up with this brilliant idea of having Lester basically be the harbinger of doom that comes into the movie and, uh, and almost like infects this new family with the, with the demonic presence. And right. um they 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 put it really nicely they they um i'm gonna steal it from them they said the movie is uh both an adaptation of the short story and a sequel to the short story all wrapped up into one um and and so i read that and i was like well that's that's inspired and i immediately had ideas of, of um how to how to kind of adapt this movie in a way that i into something that i would really want to make and part of that the main drive of, of that, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I pitched, I pitched this idea to the studio of ordinary people meets poltergeist, which is really about like the, the, the tonal references, but the, the, the main drive of doing this movie was basically wanting to make audiences feel how I felt as a terrified little kid, having read these short stories way too young and basically being, absolutely terrified in my own bedroom looking into my closet in the darkness and imagining there's a figure there and and you know looking at your your uh the hoodie that you've thrown over the back of your chair and it looks like a looks like a, a slouched figure in the corner <laughs> right. watching you. like i wanted to basically try and uh i felt like if i could put audiences back into that same headspace then you know that's that's my job done um and uh and yeah, and you're, you're you're absolutely right. This does feed directly into my King origin story because he was he was responsible in a large part for those um, those night terrors. Have you kept up with King over the years? Like, are you still a reader, or do you mostly stick with the movies? Or I'm a I'm a reader, but I'm a slow reader, so I'm still reading my way through the through through the classics. But I'm almost I'm almost up to date on the classics, and then I'm gonna get into the Dark Tower and all the big Bible sized books. Oh my god, yeah. the Dark no, Tower. I know. I've, I've got a yeah. road. I've got a road ahead of me, but I'm like I'm <laughs> I'm chugging away. I tend to like I read. I'll read. I'll read one of his books a year, or, or like it, there's. It's always on my rotation. Um, right. And and this is the thing. I'm like I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a reader. I'm I'm getting better at being being a a, a constant reader. But um, 
when I was a kid, I just didn't have the attention span. So I, oh, I, I, just, sure. I started yeah. with the short stories. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when I say a kid, I mean a kid. I was like, I was like um, 11, 12, 13 uh, when, I was, when I was reading through his, his short story collections. And um, part of the reason, like I knew, I don't know, I, 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 I can't remember a moment where I found out about Stephen King. It almost feels like one of those, like, um, it's like this kind of monolithic things that you're just born knowing that there's this writer right. Stephen right. King out there who, who like crafts nightmares for you. Um, mm-hmm. to, look, to look forward to and I kind of like he was in my brain before I even really knew yeah anything specific I you know I, it's I, kind of like being born after Star Wars like Star Wars always exists yeah. unless you were old enough to remember going to the the theater in 1977 right yeah mm-hmm. it's like it's just exists because I you know I co-host a Stephen King podcast I don't have an aha moment with Stephen King mm. like I don't have that like oh my god what is this mysterious name like I always like register I, I watch this stuff so young that like I knew the name before I knew that I needed to know what the name was if that makes yes. sense you know what I mean it's like like, uh, so I don't have that moment. I can remember like probably my first Stephen King things that I saw. Like I, I remember watching stand by me when I was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember it more because my mom had a, um, had like, she was very, she let me watch pretty much whatever I wanted. Um, but there were a few things that she was iffy about. And for whatever re- reason, language was like more important. Maybe I was going on an oh. F-bomb tear or something. I don't know. But like, <laughs> but like when Stand By Me opens and then the kids are, you know, playing cards and smoking cigarettes and, and cursing, she was yeah. like, oh, I don't know if we should watch this. And I'm like, this is the lady that lets me watch The Fly, you know, like what, <laughs> and it doesn't bat an eyeball. But, uh, you know, well, but because for whatever reason. Well, probably the thinking was you you at eight years old or whatever cannot make a brundle pod. You know what I mean? But you yeah. could, <laughs> you could <laughs> sit in a clubhouse, smoking cigarettes, looking that's at new mags and, and saying fuck a lot. So you're right. That's probably what she was thinking. But yeah. Yeah. But still it's, though, it's, it seems yeah. weird to it. it. It always strikes me as weird how puritanical people are about bad words. They're just well, words. That, that, yeah. I mean that, that kind of, that kind of leads into how I, I actually I started to kind of actualize this 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 um, kind of vague king obsession that I had, which was um, I grew up in a in a house where I mean I mean my parents tried valiantly to to raise me with no TV. I was raised with um, I was raised with like no sugar, no salt, like just very you know that they, they really Lord. had high high hopes that that, that eventually got <laughs> got diminished and and, uh, and now, I'm, salt. now I'm now I'm making horror movies. But um, they were hoping you would grow up to be the most boring person alive. <laughs> no, I know. Well, I'm close. I'm on the list. But, um, they, uh, but but one of, you know, just one of those one of those, and I don't know how it even came up, but one of one of the forbidden fruits was King. You know, you can't. You're you're too young to be reading Stephen King, and so. Um, so I, I obviously it was all I wanted to read, um, but I didn't have the patience for 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 any of the novels. So I so I, I dived into the short stories, and I can't remember the the first the first short story that I have an actual memory of is the Mangler, but I'm not sure that was the first one that I read. I think I kind of just, <laughs> just like, it was the one the, the 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 image of like the the human skin being kind of like folded and just cycling right. <laughs> That king has a way with words. So when he describes something grotesque like that, you see it. I think Guillermo del Toro, when he was on the show, had a, a similar like visceral reaction to Pet Cemetery in the description of the dead gauge. 
Like yes. some when when he, that dude's on a tear, man, he can make you picture anything you don't want to see and what you kind of secretly do want to see in your yeah, mind. Yeah, completely. And and it like had this. It was you know it was almost like um, reading satanic verse or something. I felt like as I read these short stories, it was it was um, eroding my my immortal soul. And like that one especially, I remember like reading reading the Mangler and 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 a few of the other kind of more garishly violent ones and just feeling like feeling like you know like i'd witnessed a car crash or something that i couldn't unsee i was like even at that age even at 11 i was like oh this is going to take some therapy i was a goreham kid so i was drawn to those ones first but um but most of most of the ones that really uh impacted me were definitely in in night shift it was night shift in skeleton key that skeleton crew that i remember um that i remember uh i remember the 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 worn out covers and uh Well, there's something and this is a a topic we harp on a lot on the show, so I won't go into uh, too deep into this well-tread territory. Uh, But there's something about those two collections in particular, especially with Night Shift, because these are all stories that are like these are the young and hungry king when he wrote these. These are not the ones who had, you know, made half a million dollars off of the paperback sale of Carrie. Right. This isn't. Like this is the guy that was like writing in between his eight jobs to keep food on the table for his, his new kids. Right. These are the ones that he would send off to magazines and hope and pray they would buy for a couple hundred bucks so yeah. they can afford the next phone, you know, bill. Right. And there's something, there's some energy to it, especially in night shift that it's just kind of unique. And and when you get re when you really immerse yourself in King, like we've had to do for the show, like, listen, I thought I was a, a big King reader, you know, but then when you you're, this is kind of your job to like, look at this stuff analytically, like, things pop out and to me revisiting night shift was was a big you know kind of like holy shit like there is there's a different feel to this and it feels a little bit like him in his like richard bachman phase where he's Mm. he's just he's a little meaner in these things he's a little i don't know he revels in the the gore a little bit more like he's he's writing for an audience that wants that stuff and he knows that's what sells and and it's also stuff he loves to to get into there's so yeah yeah, there's an edge to to night shift that maybe isn't in say bizarre of bad dreams you know yeah no and i mean i mean you guys have seen my movies like i'm i'm anything uh but subtle and i definitely like respond (laughs) to that i respond to that aspect of these short stories that it's like it's like he's got he's got five seconds to grab your attention. So it's like, you know, kill a laundry machine. And, you know, I'm in on that sentence. I'm in on, you know, trucks, trucks uh, come to life and, and hold you in a gas yep. station. But you said something that you said something there that also really rang true, which is like they're so mean, these stories as well. <laughs> yeah. And they're so so much of what's traumatizing about these stories comes from real world violence and real world um, nastiness. Like one of the things that I remember is is is. Um, reading children in the corn and just just thinking how incredibly horrible both the characters are and how horrible they're being to each other and that like that was so upsetting oh, yeah. as well just the this kind of ramming up together of real world trauma and fantasy trauma and i mean you know that's apparent mostly in the in the boogeyman which is which is one of his nastiest characters which we obviously we go a very different direction in the movie but um right. lester billings is is such a kind of foul um racist misogynist misanthropic he's a pre this phrase existing but he's like you know he's 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 the the archetypical toxic man who's blaming everyone except for himself even even blaming the book even blaming the boogeyman but just completely like one that story is so entrenched in real world trauma and loss it's you know it's about 
it's about the 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 death of the death of children you're kind of invited to to um to question whether it's uh whether there's a real world cause or whether this this fantastical story that Lester Billings is spinning is is the is the cause but and also this and also you're you're um confronted with this uh this kind of foul character who you would you would cross the street to avoid but nonetheless has has been right. through this incredibly um traumatizing uh series of events yeah well and as you said king paints him as i mean you know it's stephen king you're reading all these you know the, i think this this comes in what in the first like half dozen right uh shorts and you've read about vampires you've read about you know uh, i don't know at this point the mangler at this point you know so it's like you've read all these things you know that there's going to be a monster in this but still when you're reading it you can clearly see king is painting it as it could just as easily be Lester Bangs is uh, uh, murdered his kids, right? Yeah, it's like it's just it's so apparent. He talks about getting angry with them and shaking the baby. He talks about every all these really terrible, horrible things. And then on top of that, as you said, he's misogynist. He's racist. You're like you're in his head. You know that he's he's all this yeah. awful dude. So you want to believe that like no, there is no monster. He is the monster. Uh, and there's and that then, tension. Of yeah, there's that tension. Like he's so quick to violence as well. He's so quick to yes. snap back at, at, at the therapist. And so you're kind of um, King put King puts you on edge just in being in that room with him. So you're kind of uh, you're in two minds about about who's responsible. Just in the way that just in the in the tension between him and the therapist. So we we we've talked a, a pretty good deal about the boogeyman. This particular short story from Night Shift, but. You have chosen the entire Night Shift collection as your as your title this week. I guess a good a, as good a place to start as any is, uh, you know, what are your what are your favorites out of this out of this collection? I think the ones that stuck with me the most, um, it was uh, the one that became Maximum Overdrive, whatever trucks. Mm-hmm. Have um, you seen the movie based on trucks? Not Maximum I Overdrive. I haven't seen the other one. No, I heard there was a TV movie that's pretty. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty something. Um, yeah. Is it, is it pretty uh, something in the way that Maximum Overdrive is pretty something? No. Oh, uh, Maximum I, Overdrive is Citizen Kane compared to... <laughs> yeah, it's a... I, it's I a Canadian... love Maximum Overdrive. I do too. Oh, yeah. We do too. We've... we. We've hosted screenings of it. We've we are we are champions of Overdrive we, here at the King. We Cast. ripped off ACDC's score for, for that, our main for theme. That. Don't tell yeah. ACDC. <laughs> um, but yeah, Trucks is a completely different story. It's um, well, I mean, it's the same story, but it's you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a Canadian production, and it's uh, it's got all the color of like a a liminal office space. You know, it's very beige and gray and brown and um just absolutely absurd some of the sequences they set up in this movie for you know uh, ostensibly scare value there's um there's a scene where a mailman is being taunted by a like a remote control car or truck <laughs> or something and he slips off a curb and falls and then the the RC car just runs into his head against the curb over and over and over again until he dies. And it goes on for like three or four minutes, like just, <laughs> and it is the most absurd thing you will ever, not remotely scary, just ridiculous. Um, yeah. If you're in the frame of mind for that kind of film, like sort of an ill-advised thing, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely check out trucks. What did okay. you respond to uh, the the most in that story was it just the idea of machines coming to life or 
I think I think I I, I think it's when there was like these these uh, like pretty self evidently silly ideas taken like it, it was <laughs> the, the, but treated with absolute seriousness and really quite nasty you know like it, it was it just appealed to my you know I was a kid when I was reading these so they I'd recently been a kid kind of smashing truck toy trucks together and it kind of uh it kind of appealed to that side of me but then also there was this like um there was this nastiness in the violence which which you know rattled me like the the you know the guy screaming in the ditch for for hours and hours yeah, um right. so it, you know it's like so it was, it was it was ones like that and and the mangler at first um you know they they gave me the most immediate fix and then i think some of the others some of the others which i didn't think i liked as much at the time are the ones that stuck with me stuck with me more you know like children children in the corn i didn't really I, children in the corn i didn't really respond to originally but there were like images in that 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 um that kind of haunted me more than uh, gratified like the the um the desecration of the bodies and inserting corn into eyeballs and into eye sockets <laughs> and all this kind of stuff like those those images really um like those were what i was those those were images that i was thinking about uh weeks months later every time i turn my light off um but i kind of you know i kind of was like getting a buzz from from the 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 more kind of garishly violent ones uh, the ones that I'm like most interested in are are kind of the flavors that King doesn't really play with a lot now mm. as he established himself. Like I am the doorway, which is his That's like sci fi one. Well. Yeah, which is the one that like if you if you read the hardback, all you got was like a white cover that said Night Shift on it. You know, that's mm. kind of a boring cover by Stephen King standards. But the paperback had the hand with all the eyeballs in it, and they had like the yeah. If yeah. You, I think there were some versions that had like a flap that like if you opened it up, like it just looked like the eyeballs. And then if you opened it up, you actually saw the hand part. Yeah. Like really inventive shit. Um, but that's the story that this comes from. And that's like astronauts go to like Venus or something. And like, get, he gets some goo on him and then like comes back home and then starts growing eyes everywhere. Yeah. And, and like, it is really weird. It's very much in that kind of like amazing fantasies, you know, short stories that collections that would come out where it's like all the, always like as off maybe even like some Bradbury mm-hmm. adventuring into that territory, you know, well, it those kind of people. Yeah. yeah. It remind cause you know, I was, I was, I was, um, this, this came a little later, but it's definitely like a very specific niche of mine, which is like astronauts returning with some kind of like alien <laughs> life force yeah. or like, I mean, life force being a great example, which is a movie yeah. that I love, a Toby Hooper movie. Um, yeah. or, 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 you know, something they got into maybe a little later, but around the same time was the twilight zone as well. And they've got lots of um, episodes like that, where the, the, the um, astronauts come back and they're radiated in some way, or they find themselves disappearing is one of the, one of the season one episodes that I remember. Mm. The idea that you kind of venture out to these unknown places and you come back with um, with something extra dimensional or something that we don't quite understand that starts to alter your body or your or your perception or your world. The version that I had was the one with the, that you're talking about, not the Fallout one, but the one with the eyes on the on the hand. Right. And that that it was it was it was one of those stories that made me shiver. You know, it, it felt yeah. like it made me made me itch, and also that you know the idea of like what does he do? He like pours kerosene over his hands and tries to burn them off. And, and uh, the idea of um, something you can't outrun something that's like parasitic and inside of you 
is such a terrifying notion. You know, I, I grew up in the I grew up in the countryside, and I was constantly afraid of like, you know, you'd get like, you, you know, we had a we had a, a next door neighbor had a dog, and he had ringworm, and I'd be terrified that I'd stroke the dog and got ringworm or got like, <laughs> right. ticks on me, and it was like that. It was playing into that same kind of like revulsion at your own body yeah. if something gets inside and starts to corrupt your own body. There's um, there's something really there's something really gross about that. That's uh, that's uh, that's made fun by the kind of B movie uh, 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 setting, but um, yeah, it's it's like, and actually, while while we're on Toby Hooper as well with with Life Force, I kind of, I've got a uh, I've got to say the Mangler is also one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. Like it's it's like so wacky. I but... was gonna ask. I was gonna ask earlier if you had seen. Have you seen all three of them? I haven't. I didn't. I don't know. Don't know if I've even. I'm even aware of the sequels. <laughs> well, there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> um, they are in, increasingly bad. Uh, what we found in the course of doing the show is that the Mangler movies, much like many of the Children of the Corn sequels, mm. are way more fun to talk about than they are to actually watch. Yes. And none of the Mangler movies really have much to do with each other especially the second one where it's like the mangler is reintroduced as like a computer virus that takes over a security system at a boarding school and it's like you know menacing he's sounds like they did a lawnmower man with it yeah yeah um yeah actually actually very much so uh really i think they retrofitted another script to just be the mangler too they just called it something different in order to hold on to that license uh, and then the third one is just absolutely insane. Um, the first one is definitely the best of the three. Um, yeah. It feels <laughs> way better in retrospect after you've seen two and three. Uh, yeah. Like, cause I gotta, think you, go ahead. It's a, it's a weird thing with, it's a weird thing with Toby Hooper where like some of his movies, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, is, is just a movie that is undeniably great and it's not accidentally great. It's intentionally great. It's, it's expertly made. And then as his movies go on, you start to wonder whether even the great ones were like intentionally great or accidentally great. And I feel yes. like we, uh, we've had this. Yeah. This is uh, we have this conversation. It's fascinating. And it makes it makes him both very frustrating as a filmmaker, but also mm. incredibly interesting. It's yeah. like because I'm with you. I love Life Force. I know that that that's not one of the ones that uh, is held up in high high esteem, but it's the only one that kind of puts a kind of lets the air out of my balloon a little bit in my you know that Spielberg was the definitely the creative force on Poltergeist uh, yes. thing because you could like oh Toby Hooper's never made anything like it except for Life Force. Life Force has mm-hmm. a very you know a, a very yeah. similar like production design heavy feel to, to to his thing yeah yeah sorry i, I interrupted you yeah no i think that i know I, th- I, I think you're totally right and i think there's actually a lot of artistry to to uh, an, an intention behind the choices in life force i mean it's like yeah. it's 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 schlocky and 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 pulpy and you know it, it's a, you know it's a sexy space vampire movie but it's it's really um inventively shot and some of the sequences are really quite, you know quite breathtaking um and it's it, uh, he's he's uh I kind of love that stage of his career as well when he, he just like shoots these movies in such a mad way with these like crazy wide lenses. And he's doing a lot of that in the Mangler, but the tone of the Mangler is just so wildly off for most of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Some of it, oh, yeah. Robert yeah. Englund's whole character. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, sometimes I, I'm like, oh, I can kind of see what he's going for. Like, you know, he, he, 
because he shoots it in such an over the top way that it's like he was maybe going for something that was a bit more um, harmoniously over the top performance, over the top camera, over the top, everything just like really turned up to 11. Um, it just doesn't work for most of the movie. But I remember watching that. I remember watching that as a teenager and, and, and genuinely finding the machine really terrifying. Like the way that he shoots the machine feels like right. dangerous and, and um, even more so than in the, sh- in the short story, in the short story, you kind of like, you get a sense of it, but it's such a kind of like violent hulking presence in the, in the movie. And I think he does a good job with the deaths as well. I mean, like I'll always remember, uh, is it, it is Robert England who gets like folded in himself. Oh yeah. At the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His legs barely worked anyway, so it can be folded up to to his bionic legs. He's got like bionic, bionic Forrest Gump braces Uh or something. (laughs) It's absurd. That light it doesn't it like lock up at a certain point on him, and he's like cursing yeah. at his. He's having a yeah. stiff leg around movie is or some fucking shit. Bizarre. That's one that we found because uh, like, we watched it obviously for the show, and we're like, we were. I had a reaction because I remember seeing that in theaters, and I was like, man, this is like really bizarre and weird, and it's like gritty, and there's something about mm-hmm. the tone that is very off-putting throughout the whole thing and i'm like oh that's kind of effective then i rewatched it for the show and i was like oh man this is a chore i can barely get through it like yeah. the the pacing is all off and then like oh what are we going to talk about and then we had we recorded one of our best episodes yeah. deconstructing this thing and realizing that it is way more fun to talk about than it is to, to yeah. watch yeah and that blew my mind because I've, I've never really had that experience outside of this podcast. It's mostly if I don't like a movie, yes, it's fun to beat up on a, like a, a shitty movie, but mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, I, I don't view the mangler as a shitty movie. It's just not a fun one to watch. You know, I don't yeah. know. I never had that that before this. It's like yeah. all the, cho- all the choices in the mangler are like 75% correct. You know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Right. So it's, it's all just, it's all just a little off in a way where, you're not really sure how to take things from scene to scene. And like, as you were saying, Rob, it's, it's, it's it's, everyone, everyone is in a different movie. Everyone is making a different movie. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And speaking, speaking of which, and, and you touched on this just a moment ago, the lawnmower man is in this collection. Uh, We have, we've had a lot of people select lawnmower man as their title on this show. uh, Probably for obvious reasons. It's just, uh, uh, utterly bizarre and hilarious and you know a good yes. a, a good thing to talk about <laughs> in general um but it has almost no uh reflection within the, the the original text you know which brings in like greek mythology and there's you know yeah. kind of a political undercurrent to it like what um what do you make of that short story I remembered, I, I mean, that one, that one didn't really stick with me very much. I remember being kind of like, I remember kind of being freaked out by the idea that, that, um, that these kind of, you know, like, like Pan and all these old ancient gods could kind of manifest in such a, in such a kind of creepy suburban setting, you know, that, that it could mm-hmm. be this, you know, the guy on your front lawn could be, could be an agent of um, these demonic deities. And I remember, like, I, I remember that feeling kind of like, you know, it's definitely one of one of one of the ways in which King made my world feel unsafe. But it didn't feel, um, yeah, it didn't it didn't have as much of an impact on me as some of the some of the the more violent ones. Right. Um, y'all, y'all were talking earlier about the, you know, how the stories in this collection feel a little, a little different 
And it's it's yeah, worth yeah. pointing out that in this collection, almost with the exception of maybe three or four of the stories, um, these were all written for like titty magazines, you know, yeah. Cavalier, yeah. Hustler, mm. and so on and so forth. And I think that plays a role in that. I think, you know, he's hemmed in by a word count, so they've got to be kind of punchy. You know, you want them to be over the top. You, you know, you're you're playing to your audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what sells better than sex and violence? So here you go, yeah. Cavalier readers. Uh, <laughs> Lawnmower Man was written for Cavalier. And that's one where I'm like, what the fuck was he thinking? Like, <laughs> like, like the average was the average Cavalier reader, like all caught up on the lore surrounding Pan. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. must the readers of that. Let's see. The ni- May 1975 issue of Cavalier must have been like, oh, <laughs> I like this guy's other stories, but this one, he's just, I don't know what he's trying to do here. Yeah. Back to the A naked fat man he- eating, eating grass. grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only part about that story that stuck out to me as a kid was the guy winding up dead and piled up just like in a mass of flesh in the, the bird bath that, that right. image really stuck with me, but mm-hmm. pretty much nothing else from that story. Yeah. Just when I, I was a kid. It takes a little while to get there. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. You, the other, the other you know, one, that's, the other one that's okay. kind of like that, 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 did, that did actually really stick with me, but kind of like feels much less. Um, what well, feels much much less titty magazine to be to be honest is Strawberry Spring, which mm. is like it's kind of it kind of has this kind of like quite detached, detached, almost kind of like wistful um, mm-hmm. approach to the bite. Like it's not really scary. Um, but it's it, but it, it kind of like the thing the thing that the thing that I really related to with that one. I mean, one it like it talks about Spring Hill Jack, who was like, "That's you know, I'm I'm a Brit, so that's that he's one of us." Um, <laughs> so that that was that was exciting, and that was kind of like you know, I was already kind of like um, that that was that and just Spring Hill Jack and 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 Jack the Ripper and all of those like old Victorian. Um, you know, penny dreadful. Uh, 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 you know, true true crime stories were kind of like another one of my gateways into horror. So I was like, there was a crossover there that I appreciated. I, like I grew up in a really small, boring town in the countryside. Like you know, I come from a family of farmers. Like we didn't have there wasn't much going on, and I kind of clicked with that excitement as well in in that story that 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 um, that kind of takes over the campus when there's the murder that everyone is like kind of excited because someone they know got got killed by a serial killer and there's somebody right. buzzing around you know and it was the same thing with when i first saw scream as well it's one of the things that that movie gets really right is the idea of um like it's kind of exciting to be to be in the midst of something like that unfolding right sure. it's scary but it's it, yeah you you get that like oh my god who's who's gonna be next it's not gonna be me maybe it's me yeah but yeah 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 well, it's worth noting that uh, Strawberry Spring is the oldest story in this collection, originally published in 1968. Oh, so wow. that's got to be around the time he was like really branching into, right? That's got to be like around the Long Walk era, you know, where he mm-hmm. was just really getting started. So maybe that's why it has a different feel. You know, that's like college age king, you know, writing all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Um, also, it was published in a literary mag from, right, or a literary journal from Maine, not not a, a nudie magazine. So <laughs> slightly, slightly different. Um, and the other story from that, uh, that also published in, what's it? Ubris? Ubris is the, yeah. the name of the magazine um, is night surf, which, which uh, is from 1969. Oh, that one's fucked uh, up. 
and that one's yeah that's like an end of the world thing but that's also the you know where he kind of introduced the idea of a global plague right that ended up turning into the stand which this is a thread i want to i want to pick up for some other stories in in here but but uh did you was night you you know i mean you see you kind of you see you see him kind of like rehearsing for a lot of his bigger stuff yeah all, all across this this collection and night, I mean, night, just to talk about Night Surf for a second, like Night Surf, well, Night Surf, Night Surf 1 that felt, was another one that felt kind of very adult because of the way that the, the characters interact with each other, just the kind of, um, right. the, the, the nasty, sleazy way in which he, he treats his girlfriend. And, um, yeah. and then also that, and it wasn't something I really got at, at, at the time, but like, you know, I've, re- I've reread a bunch of these since, including this one. And it's like the, the kind of, that sense of like the world is over and 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 there's this kind of like vacuum of just boredom being the few people who are left on the planet and they, there's this there's the this the bit at the beginning where they they find the guy who who they think is probably infected and then kind of like just wantonly burn him alive that feels mm-hmm. like it feels like it's done almost out of boredom as much as anything else right. but it's it's the, the sense of like these characters with no society to really um, impose a structure are just kind of wantonly violent and 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 without morality it was a really scary, um, weird uh, thing to kind of wrap your head around. I didn't ever, I didn't ever experienced anything like that before. The person I was reading was so um, unfeeling. It's also weird reading that story uh, in a post-COVID world because mm. I mean, listen, you can draw all the parallels you want to the stand, and it was bizarre. I read the stand during lockdown; it was one of my coping mechanisms yeah. for it, and it oddly made me feel better. I don't know why it did, but it did. But like the the whole conversation and the the night surf that I that stood out to me, you know, reading it post-pandemic was was just the like oh maybe i'm immune like maybe maybe i didn't get it i don't think i got it and then like somebody's like oh i'm sure didn't get it and then you they start getting sick because every one of us had that friend or it's just like even if we all took it seriously and masked up or whatever we had that friend that was like yeah okay i went to a party on saturday but it's fine you know it was outdoors and like justifying it justifying it and then like then guess who's the first one to get fucking covid it's it's that person Uh right yeah exactly So yeah, that that was a weird a weird uh, element to that story. Yeah. Um but yeah, but the thread that I wanted to kind of pick up from that one is that King doesn't do a lot of sequels. He'll do a lot of like, you know, Doctor Sleep's an obvious example that that he did and The Dark Tower is a, you know, that's more of a one long story that he's being told. Mm-hmm. What well, I guess you can say that's what sequels are. Sue me, you know, you can you can be pedantic about it, but you know, it's different. That one was always intended to be you know, this one epic journey versus like Dr. Sleep was never intended to come out after the shining. That was just something that floated his boat. Um, But uh, he usually avoids that stuff. But in this collection, equal and a sequel in this one, you have, yeah, you with Jerusalem's lot and one for the road, that's a prequel and a sequel to Salem's lot, two stories in the same collection. And then with night surf, obviously he didn't intend this to be a prequel to, or a side story or whatever to uh, the stand. Uh, And this book was published, I believe, before the stand came out um but like looking at it within the whole body of work you know he calls it captain trips in the you know in the story and like so this is like the origins of it it's really odd you know just looking at it looking back on it um 
that's you know just it, it makes this collection stand out because he doesn't really do that a lot yeah. even in his other stuff he'll have shared universes where you know Cujo and and the dead zone take place in the same universe because it has some overlapping characters but nobody would call Cujo a sequel to dead zone yeah yeah you know? no and it seems like he's interested in just like deepening the mythology of Salem's lot yes I mean it's it's I mean, J- J- Jerusalem's lot wasn't what, like, it was one of the longer ones and it was like, it was, it was kind of antiquated and it's letters. And it's like, so it wasn't when, when I yeah. first read it as a kid, it wasn't one of the ones that I gravitated towards. Big same. It's one of the ones that I've reread the most and like, and that I get a lot. Like, it's just, it's batshit crazy, but it starts out right. almost like an MR James story. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> right. you know, inheriting a house and there's, there's, you know, the locals won't go near and the, the, uh, the, you know, rats in the, in the wall. Um, and then it just builds into this like hysterical, crazy, um, y- y- you know, Lovecraftian cosmic horror th- thing with with um, zombie vampires and and the worm and all this kind of stuff. And it's like it's such a crazy ride that story, and especially in such a weird format as well. Well, I mean, that goes back to the original way that uh, Stroker wrote Dracula, right? And I know that King taught Dracula in, when he was a teacher. And he loved it. And uh, yeah, and he, he he's a big fan of that book. So I could see like the excited writer in King going, ooh, you know, if I'm going to tell like an older, you know, this is the origins of the vampires and in Salem's Lot, kind of where all this came from, like, I'll just take that, uh, that yeah. style. It's, no, it's, it's kind of like he's it's kind of like he's like, I'm going to do everything in this short story. Yeah. I'm going to do it all. The first half of the story is really genuinely creepy. Um you know, before before it goes into the the kind of big cosmic battleground at the end, like I, I I've always been drawn to these um uh these ideas of like abandoned spaces, um like like the the story of the Mary Celeste was something that I used to obsess over as a kid, mm. and, um the the you know the sequence where they go back and they realize that this place has been has been left completely abandoned, um and that nobody no ransackers have 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 dared go near it is right. really um there's some really little, potent imagery there uh, a little roanoke in there for for us americans yeah yeah did you ever, <laughs> did you ever, did you ever listen to that podcast limetown i have not no. oh it's really good well the, the first season is it's um it's basically like a fake podcast like told in the style of like an npr style podcast um about this town where suddenly one day everyone just disappeared and this journalist is trying to get to the bottom of it and it's um it's really creepy and really kind of Lynchian, but it's one of, it's one of the rare things where the more you find out about what actually happened, it's not a letdown. It's not a disappointment. Actually, the, the whole show becomes way more interesting when you find out what made these people completely up and vanish. It's What's really, it called it's really again? It's called Limetown. Limetown. It sounds interesting. I'll yeah, check it it's out. Really, it's really good, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of, I, I've been kind of scratching at the same itch of like, uh, anything that gives me that feeling that that, um, that reading about the Mary Celeste, uh, You're right? Oh yeah, this 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 story was definitely one of those. That ties into another uh, the other Salem's Lot story too, yeah. one for the road because that's it's like the the uh, it's a perfect bookend for that, and he actually places them as such that it's like Jerusalem's Lot's the first story, and I don't I think one for the road's later. I don't know if it's the last one. It's the second to last one. Um, but it has, it plays with the same thing of like, this is, takes place three years after 
um, the the events of Salem's Lot, and it's like just the locals don't go near the town. It, it was yeah. burnt down at the end of uh, of King's Book, and uh, but there's still stuff there, and people go disappearing when they go there, and you find yeah. out why. And like this is one of my favorites. Like this is one I don't really remember it as a kid when I read this. I don't know why I wouldn't have, but like when I reread it for the show, like it instantly jumped up. It's like probably top 10 of King's short stories. I just yeah. love this whole, the, the, the idea of like, you know, the, these poor people that, that they see the vampire, the little vampire girl and just wanting to, wanting to help her. Cause it's, she's in the snow and it's a girl lost looking for her mommy. And, yeah. You know, like all that stuff. It's like, Oh my God, it's, I, it, I can understand why somebody gets suckered in by that. Then she wants to give him a kiss. And that of course mm. means ripping, ripping out his jugular. But uh, it's, it's one of the uh, most, it's one of the most just purely scary short stories in the collection. Yeah. One for the road. And it's like, I, I love, I, I I love I tend to love movies that are about like going into some forbidden zone, like crossing into you know going into to Chernobyl. Something awful's happened here, and like I nobody mean, yes. goes in there, and you've got to take a journey through. You know, I mean, it's like The Last of Us, you know, which is the the game is such a huge thing for me, and right. um, it it kind of has that it kind of has that atmosphere about it. You know, it's the place that the place that nobody returns from. Um, and then having to having to venture in there, and yeah, all the stuff, all the stuff with the little girl is so um, <laughs> just fucked. It's great. Well, and I just love that what it t- tells you is that even though our heroes made it out of the the town, you know, alive, and and uh, you know they're going vamp vampire hunting because I think don't they return in the book? They go back after they burn it and like stake a bunch of vampires that they still find. Yeah, I think uh, so. there, but like it's like you ain't gonna get all of them, you know. Maybe it's like the end of it. Like the yeah. losers might have stomped out all of the uh, all the little Pennywise babies that they found, uh, but maybe they didn't get all of them, you know. Yeah. yeah. One uh, another title that we haven't touched on yet is Battleground, which I'm a big fan of. Also yeah. has a really cool adaptation. Um, the the um, Nightmares and Dreamscapes one with William yeah Hunt. yeah yes yeah. One. That's really well made, actually. I watched that again recently. Yeah. It's it's the best episode of that entire anthology series. Like, and it's not even close. It's sort of like, and they led with that one too, which is tricky. Because mm-hmm. if you start watching that series and you see Battleground, you're like, oh, holy shit, this series is going to rule. It doesn't. No. Like, yeah. there's, it's like 50-50 at best, and that's being, like, really generous. There's some... Mm-hmm pretty rough clunkers uh in there but um i'm i'm i was gonna ask if you had seen it so i'm 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 happy yeah. to hear that you have most people have are not even aware of that thing existing yeah no i love that adaptation and um and I, this is one of the stories that i love as well it's uh and it's kind of it, again it kind of scratches that twilight zone itch it's like one of my favorite twilight zone right. episodes is the invaders which is the, the where the spacecraft crashes into the the kind of homestead and the, the woman is played by the tiny little aliens. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's just one of the most purely fun stories as well in the collection. It's fun. It's fun. And it's got that same kind of uh, uh, like almost childlike simplicity of something like trucks, but it's really dynamic and it's really inventive. And it's also really like he, he, he finds ways of still making it really nasty. Like, there's the bit where where he kind of realizes, you know, he might be able to to stamp these guys out, but they're trying to they're trying to shoot his eyes out and blind him, and then he's going to be fighting them blind. Like he, King always finds these like really nasty, triggering ways to 
to mm -hmm. um, implement the violence. And um, it's got that, you know, to your point about it feeling like a Twilight Zone episode, it's 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 got that sort of twist ending to it. I, I, I tend to associate this kind of an ending maybe more with like, you know, EC comics, tales from the crypt, stuff like that. Yeah. But you know, the, the quote unquote hero, the anti-hero you've been following all this time now is, uh, you know, he gets his comeuppance in a really <laughs> stupid ass way. You know, I, it's in, you know, in the story, he sets off the bomb accidentally, right. By throwing the lit thing into the toy box. Mm, yeah. 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 And yeah. then in the, and in in the, the I think it's different in the, it's in the it's in the elevator, isn't it? And the whole shaft of the elevator blows up. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he becomes like a the Rambo toy becomes the suicide bomber or whatever, right? Yeah, he thinks he wants. Yeah, this Real came out. I, I remember re I remember reading this, uh, and it was around the time that Small Soldiers, the Joe Dante movie, came out. So in my head, it was always the Small Soldiers from Small Soldiers attacking the guy. You know what? I'm going to confess something. I've never actually seen Small Soldiers. It's really fun. I remember yeah, I, I like love Dante and like it would seem to be a thing that I would have checked out when it came out. What was that? Like 96, 97. Um, yeah. Maybe a bit later even. Yeah. I, I, I would have been like primed for that. Uh, and I don't know why I didn't see it. And then I just never caught up with it. Um, you're a fan of it though. I should check that out. It's good. It's good. It's got, yeah, it's, I mean, I love all of Dante's stuff. It's got a kind of, um, got a nastiness to it i mean it was a pg over here which is like i guess pg-13 over there but it's like i remember it being quite nasty for a, for a kid's movie like thinking thinking like you know those those toys really want to fuck those kids up this ain't, this ain't yeah. <laughs> oh the only thing i remember about when that one came out was that burger king had like a tie-in yeah because i remember burger king commercials with small soldier shit that's that's my predominant memory of that movie's release. I don't, I don't hardly also, know anything about it. It's also Joe Dante like beating James Cameron to the punch because like all mm. the, the toys in the toy soldiers are pretty much Avatar. It's like the military versus the the indigenous uh, animal people. Yeah, and the Wait, military have... sure hates those indigenous animal people. And uh, uh, yeah, so yet so another wait, thing that wait, James wait, wait. Cameron. So are they uploading the consciousness of soldiers into these toys? <laughs> no, no, it's just the, just the parallel of like how Avatar is, you know, the military versus, oh, you, know, I it's, see. you know, which you can also trace back to Dances with Wolves and all the stuff that, that Avatar gets uh, knocked for all the time. Uh, rightfully so, uh, I think. But, uh, but not many people, uh, not many people talk about Avatar and small soldiers in the same But set. nobody like does, I guess, because it's it's dog toys and like they're dog <laughs> people toy and dog humanoids, not cat humanoids. So, uh -huh. so you know, that's that's where the genius of Cameron you know, yeah. people like cat people more than they like dog people. And wait, wait, let's, so just as a very tenuous link, let, let's use Cameron to, Cameron to talk about Graveyard Shift as well, because that's another <laughs> one of my favorites. And sure. like, it's kind of like aliens with rats, I think. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the bit where they, he describes the kind of like eyeless, limbless mother rat giving birth yes. to these, these mutant babies. It's like something that will forever be stuck in my consciousness. <laughs> yeah that's a that's a grody one and, and that's one that 
King has a whole thing. Another that's another Salem's Lot tie-in is like the, famously there's was one edit that he had to make to Salem's Lot, and that was uh, it's like you know vampires control rats. That's in you know that's in Dracula, and so he had the doctor originally killed by rats, uh, mm. um, and uh, uh, apparently his editor was just like nope, too much. And this is huh. you know, it was only a second book, so he was he wasn't Stephen King yet. So I yeah. think. After The Shining, he became a huge bestseller. Nobody could go, that's too much. And he goes, okay. And he capitulates. <laughs> I don't think that happens after The Shining. But, uh, you know, famously, it was that it was one scene where, like, I think he describes a rat, the well, mob of rats, like, taking the doctor down and then one rat, like, climbing into his mouth and eating its t- his tongue out or something. Yeah, yeah. He, he was like, <laughs> too much. And, uh, you know, he already kind of got that out of a system with the graveyard shift. He wrote this way before. So, yeah. But there's yeah. something. King loves, loves rats eating people. Just yeah. got to say. This is one actually that David Dasmalchian really wants to make into a feature, and uh, and I yeah, kind of, he, that I was his title when he came on him. the first time. Yeah, what was it? Yeah, he came on and talked about it. He didn't. I don't remember if he talked about wanting to re remake it be, or do a proper adaptation or whatever, because there was that that really bonkers adaptation. Yeah, with the Stephen Stephen mocked and Brad Dorf. Mm. Yeah, I don't think he talked about wanting to adapt it, but I'll. It, Big Double D would fit well in with yeah. the Graveyard Shift story. I could absolutely see him, you know, playing one of those characters. That, yeah, that, no, we got we were we were doing the press junket. We 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 both got cornered about which what's what other Stephen King property we'd like to remake. And uh, I said Langoliers, and he said uh, Graveyard Shift. Langoliers, really? Mm. Yeah, Why, I've got a, uh, I've got a great, okay. a great. Please, take. can you talk about it? Uh, I can't can't say too much. I mean, it's all, like the rights are all tied up, so I, I don't. I um, it's it's one of the ones that I mentioned to 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 King that I really wanted to do after he, after he saw Boogie. Um, he he, which is a very surreal email to get from Stephen King, but he emailed me saying saying we should work together again on something, and I immediately was like, I really want to adapt the Langoliers, and he he was really enthusiastic about that. But I think the rights are tied up, so we're we're, we're trying to unpick them. So I can't I can't say too much, and it's certainly not a real thing yet. But like, I always loved that short story, and felt oh, it's like so it was, great. It's so great, and it's so creepy, and it's such a brilliant, simple. Like, why didn't I think of that setup with the with the plane? It's so um, it's so spooky, and uh, and yeah, I just I I think there's a, a definitively terrifying version of that, and as as much as I enjoy the uh, the uh, TV movie, it's that that's not it. <laughs> I didn't really enjoy the TV movie. I mean, I, I love Bronson Pinchot in it. I think he's like the best thing in it by a, by a war, wide margin. I think it's just really flat and it seems, I don't know. The, the pacing feels off. It, uh, it's really, it oh, it's really not very good, but it's re- it's kind of fun to watch when you're baked, you know, it's oh, like- for sure. For sure. Um, I'm guessing that you would have a different approach to uh, yes. bringing the Langoliers themselves to the big screen, <laughs> like that early CGI. Like, yeah, you, yeah, you got to be true to the CGI meatball, though. <laughs> the fans will revolt. Yeah, if it doesn't look like it was made in MS Paint. What yeah, did that? What what do the Langoliers look like in in your mind? That that's a bit of that's a bit of a spoiler for the take, but it takes it. Okay. <laughs> I thought I'd be sneaky. No, it Uh, takes it off in a very different direction and it has a bit more of a kind of um, creature feature angle on it, but, but also like leans into the, it leans into the mythology a bit more and, and, and yeah, I don't know. I've got, I've got, I've got something that I'm really excited about for that one. They look like John Hamm. 
There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would I would be so hyped if someone did Langoliers again and did it with modern oh, yeah. technology and did it with an actual budget and yeah. you know. They can assemble such a fun cast with that too. Oh my such God, a great yeah. ensemble. Get a bunch yeah. of character actors in there, just let them mm-hmm. loose. I yeah. Walton I, Goggins up in there oh. somewhere. Goggins would make a He'd fucking great, great Boomy. Yeah. Oh That's man. That's another one that David Dasmalchian would be great. I mean, there's probably not a movie that oh, yeah. we wouldn't slot into, but yeah, that'd be a great one to cast. Dasmalchian has like he is the nicest guy you can meet. Yes. Right. Also, he has an inherently creepy on-screen presence, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and it has to do with how he holds himself and I think the the silences that yeah. that he'll inject into into scenes um but like an, an a genuinely unsettling presence when when he's trying to be and uh yeah, yeah I can do, see he can do both yeah, so be, beautifully. I mean that was that was why you know we thought of him immediately for for Lester Billings is that we wanted uh wanted to go a different direction from the from the short story and have somebody who you um you know one moment you could be really um empathizing with and feeling for and then just just with the tiniest little gesture or change in his face you, you he can he can make himself terrifying and foreboding and like have this this like threat of violence just simmering there beneath the surface and he can do it all with such like um with such a deft touch and it makes I think those 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 moments of creepiness punch so much harder when he's somebody who you want to um, you want to to console when you first see him and he's first t- t- talking about his um, you know the tragedy that's befallen him. I um I have one other Langoliers related question for you. <laughs> um, have you seen something called Timekeepers of Eternity? No, what's that? Okay. Uh, for the last several years, uh, Vespi and I have taken the KingCast to Fantastic Fest in Austin. Yeah. And we'll do a screening of something, and then we'll do a live recording there. And it's usually, you know, something very silly. Um, and the first year they invited us out, they were like, yeah, we got this really weird thing that we want to screen. And oddly enough, you guys might be the perfect fit for it. And we we're like, well, what is it? And they said it's called, it's a Stephen King adaptation called Timekeepers of Eternity. And I'm like, there's no Stephen King thing called Timekeepers of Eternity. Like, what the fuck are they talking about? And they tried to describe it to us a few times. And I don't know, you know, I'm speaking only for myself. I don't know about Eric, but I had trouble picturing what they were describing. Right. But I, it, um, it was tough. And they, they sent us a link and we, we watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, so what it is, it's a, a Greek director. What he did was he printed out every frame of the Langoliers in black and white on a sheet of paper. So he basically had the whole movie in flipbook form, right? Then he re-edited it, cut it down to about, what, 80 minutes, something like that? Very short. And it completely restructures the story. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't even say it's a Stephen King adaptation. It's like a weird Hmm. pirate like adaptation of the Langoliers or something right. it's all in black and white. And there's weird little effects strewn throughout it, you know, with, uh, you know, cause it's all on paper. So there'll be scenes where yeah. the paper rips open and you can see a character from another scene behind it or eyeballs looking at you or the Langoliers peeking wow. through or whatever the fuck, you know, and yeah. the, the cumulative sensation of watching it is, it's super hypnotic. 
Mm. All in black and white, no soundtrack. So it's like just dialogue and and sound effects. Um, If I don't think it is freely available anywhere, you know, you were talking about there might be a rights issue with that title. Um, I would imagine why that's not (laughs) why it hasn't been able to get released. And also because he didn't have permission to do it in the first place. That's a very Um, niche. That's a deep cut. Yeah, very much so. Like uh, it's fascinating, though. Have you got a link to it still? I actually do, but uh, I don't know what the password is for it. <laughs> it's an we, we, old we might, Vimeo We might be link. able to, to investigate this for you further. If, if you find that password, I would love to see that. That sounds... It's 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 really amazing. fascinating in that he he like uh, frames it, he frames Toomey kind of front and center mm. in it, and it becomes more of Toomey's mental breakdown. Yeah. And that's when the reality is, is, you know, tearing apart and, you know, Toomey's thing is ripping paper. Right. So that all that factors into it. It's really well done. And again, this dude probably like, it's like, it's like when you hear the stories of like, um, Ray Harryhausen, you know, working, it's like, Oh, well he worked eight weeks straight and he made the Cyclops and Sinbad move three, three inches. Yeah. It's like, it's that kind of dedication oh to your God. It's like, God damn dude. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's insane. It's definitely worth watching. We'll get your email address after yeah. we record and yeah. see what Time we can keep, do. But... Timekeepers of eternity. Yeah. Timekeepers of eternity. Fascinating. I hope you do manage to work that out because Lord knows. Uh, of the t- I, I always confuse Langoliers and Tommyknockers for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, in my head, I switch those titles a lot, which has created some confusion amongst guests who have yeah. picked either title in the past. <laughs> but uh, I think James Wan was trying to do Tommyknockers for, for a yeah. minute. He was. Yeah. I don't... I mean, that was announced... That was announced before... I want to say like a year or two before we were even doing the show, and we've not heard anything I about would be it fine since. with them lo- leaving Tommyknockers alone. Yeah. Uh, yeah Langoliers, I want Tommy to see Langoliers. Langoliers. Yeah, yeah we don't need it. no Tommyknockers. No, yeah, that's needs, kind of what I was getting to. A, the world needs a, a proper Langoliers adaptation. Yes, Definitely and uh, I must insist, now that we've talked about it here, you untangle the rights, you get to make the movie, Scott and I get to disappear on the plane. Okay, deal. <laughs> and, and Scott's the one that leaves behind like the, the butt plug or whatever. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm into it. I'm into it. I can be that guy for you. <laughs> yes. So contract now. You have to agree to it now or we're not going to let you go. You're on. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Verbal, Verbal contract. The most binding of all contracts. Um <laughs> So I, I think we've said just about everything we want to about Night Shift. Let's let's focus back on the boogeyman for a minute. What what do you want people to know about this movie? Like, what's your sales pitch? Give me the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch is uh, this is this is a movie that well, it's, I mean, it's kind of what I kind of what I said up top of like this is a, this is a movie that aims to make you feel like that terrified kid again waking up in your dark bedroom in the middle of the night. And I know that everyone's got that kid inside of them. They, they maybe all have different um, different things that they were seeing in the darkness, but this is trying to unify all of that into a movie that's um, that's a fun, kind of like it's a PG, it's a really fucked up, scary PG-13, but it's a PG-13. It's a, it's a ghost train movie in that it's, uh, it's propulsive. It's full of scares, um, but it's also got real heart. And, um, and I think is like, I think is still kind of like chewing on those same themes that King is uh, King is attacking in the short story and hopefully it builds on it. And uh, I'm really incredibly proud of, I'm incredibly proud of the movie as a whole, but I'm really proud of, of, of 
every single actor in this movie, the performances are, are, are uniformly excellent. And um, I think carry this movie to, to greater heights than it would have uh, otherwise reached. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, that's the pitch. It's, it's scary as hell, but hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll shed a tear and you'll give a shit. Yeah. I heard some people at CinemaCon walked out of that screening within the first 20 minutes. Cause it was too much. I was yeah, like, fuck well, yeah, that's what I like to hear. The first time you see the creature, the audience at the first test screening had such a big reaction that they talked and whispered and kind of like there was a general hubbub in the cinema for about a minute afterwards and they completely missed the next scene, which is like <laughs> pivotal importance. So we had to re-edit the movie to add this like buffer zone after that first scare just to let people kind of cool, cool down. So I know, I know exactly when people started uh, filing out of the cinema. It's it's like a comedian timing. They know they have a, a banger of a of a laugh thing and, and timing a pause between the next using that as a transition moment. Yeah. Exactly. That's funny. We thank yeah. you for, for coming on. We encourage everyone to go check out the Boogeyman this weekend. I've got tickets for Friday. I'm very excited. Oh nice. And um we uh we do hope you come back and we we wish you all the best in terms of maybe getting Langoliers off the ground. That would be fucking awesome. Well, yeah, if anyone wants to see a Langoliers adaptation, go and see The Boogeyman in cinemas this weekend, because that's, that's, that's <laughs> the end of that. if, this movie, if this movie flops, then I, I ain't making any more Stephen King. <laughs> nobody well, uh, nobody will let me back at the wheel again. And Uncle Vespi and Pop-Pop Wampler want to be disappearing plane passengers, so all you better buy two tickets. Yeah, mm-hmm. that ain't motivation. I don't know what is. <laughs> well, all right, awesome, man. Well, thank you for being here, and we uh, we hope to have you back. Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you. Many thanks to Rob Savage for joining us in one incredibly busy week for him. I still don't understand why he wanted to set aside his hour to talk a uh, week of release. But, you know, uh, we're glad he did because that is, you know, he seemed like a really nice guy. Super into King. Had a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting things to say about the Boogeyman, uh, which Scott still hasn't seen. I still won't see this. Uh, won't, won't, have, won't have seen it by the time it airs. Like, I'm not seeing it till this Friday. I know it'll be what long when you move out in the middle of nowhere and you don't have <laughs> access to press screenings anymore. It's a bummer. And no digital screeners. Either. At, at, the, at the theaters in Idaho, I imagine it's going to be like the Titanic, right? Where you just have a, a sweaty guy like shoveling coal to create the light to, <laughs> to, to make the uh, movie projector work. Right. And there, there's no popcorn. It's just potatoes in a bag. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Uncooked, raw. No, potatoes. actually, there's a nice theater um, somewhat near me, but. They're not doing press screenings there, so that's where I'll see it on uh, on Friday night. But uh, I am I am hyped to uh, to check it out. Everyone I've talked to whose opinion I trust is on board with this movie. Mm. So I'm super curious about how you uh, take to it because I know your aversion to trauma horror, and this is definitely mm-hmm. in that that category. So we'll see what they do with it. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, I I'm rooting for it. I want to like it. If it's not just like a a bummer to sit through, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna dig it a lot. So, and I haven't, I haven't heard anyone talking about it being a bummer. I've heard no. trauma mentioned, but it's definitely not a bummer. So you, yeah, I think you'll be safe from, from that one. Right on. And, uh, you know, this is just the beginning of our boogeyman coverage next week on the show, as we mistakenly announced two weeks ago or a week ago. However, fu- I don't understand the passage of time anymore. Um, David Das Malchin, a star of the boogeyman, which hits theaters this Friday, will be joining us next week for 
what I would consider a very loose episode on Creepshow. We talk a lot about the movies that Das Malchin has in the pipeline. Um, we talk a lot about Boogeyman. We talk we talk about a lot of things. And then also there's some Creepshow talk. That's right. That's basically well, what you're getting next week. But we've also gone through Creepshow with a fine tooth comb on more than one occasion now. So just sit back and enjoy a, uh, a friendly chat with Big Double D next week. Yeah. Yeah, he he was very influenced by Creepshow and EC Comics and stuff. So that's kind of where where the conversation tends to go is, you know, more than like a deep analytical look at, at each segment or whatnot. But it's, yeah. uh, you know, We've that's kind of the beauty that. of the show. This is personal connection to that, that movie and what, what it meant to him. So And he's always a pleasure to talk to. Always. So it's a fun one. Yeah. If he wanted to come on and talk about My Little Pony or something, we'd totally be be down for it. It's uh, Desmolton. Mm-hmm. You got to let him do it. My man was in The Dark Knight. He can do whatever he wants. True. For our Patreon subscribers, this Friday we have an episode focusing on a short story called Sorry Right Number, which you may have read in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Our guest is Riley Ott of the Horror Struck podcast, and uh, we are going to be using this as an excuse to kind of dive into Tales from the Dark Side a little bit, too, because there was an adaptation of this in Tales from the Dark Side, and this was a show that like I watched pretty obsessively in in my formative years. So, uh, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Talk about King and Tales from the Dark Side. Is this episode on YouTube? Where am I watching it? Um, well, we're going to send uh, a carrier pigeon with a VHS strapped to its leg. It's going to take Very a little nice. bit, but it'll get to you. Um, send a time machine, too, so I can go get a VCR. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in Idaho. You could probably just go find one at, uh, <laughs> at, at the the Souls uh, Radio Shack that's still open over there. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll make sure you get to see it in, in some way, shape, or form. But if not, at the very least, you got the short story. If you want to listen to it, you should probably head on over to patreon.com slash thekingcast. Sign up. Uh, you'll want to be in our six or ten dollar tier. The, we have a three dollar tier, but that's essentially just our tip jar. If you don't want to be on the hook for six bucks a month or ten bucks a month, but you like the show enough to throw us a couple of bucks, that's what that three dollar tier is for. But you don't get much for it. So if you really want to get the other half of the show, uh, since we have an episode every single week, every Friday, uh, you'll want to be in our six or ten dollar tier. So head on over to Patreon.com again and sign up. It's really fun. And I think that about does it for this week, doesn't it? That's it. All right, well, All right. we'll see y'all next week for some creep show talk with David Desmalchin. Adios, folks. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>